Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with the psychological horror film When a Stranger Calls from 1979. Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is the voice heavily breathing on the phone, Doug Tilly. Stop doing that, Doug. Doug, what's going on with you? Liam, things are so good right now. (laughs) 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 I mean, I don't want to talk about life. You know, this is something I do want to mention, though, which is uh, longtime listeners of the show, and by long time, I mean just the last few episodes, might remember that uh, throughout the month of February 2022... I, uh, my wife and I decided to go vegan. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a bit of a test for us. I did. We didn't really know how it was going to go necessarily. Didn't want to make it like a fad. It was just that we were kind of testing the waters on making a big lifestyle change. I've been feeling a lot of guilt about meat eating and things like that. And um, I have decided, as of March 2022, to uh, it's not probably very as impressive to be a vegetarian. I think from. Uh, from going forward, um, maybe with few exceptions, and I don't know what those would be, I am going to live my life as a vegetarian. And this isn't a coming out or an announcement that has any particular meaning or resonance, but it is something that is going on, gone in my life right now. And though I don't feel better physically whatsoever, I do feel a little bit better mentally. So I'll, I'll take that. I, I, I'm of the opinion that, um, depending on how you handle it, being a vegetarian almost always leads people to feel at least a little bit better simply because we tend not to eat enough vegetables. You know, I I know that's not true of everyone, but a lot of people, and I I know this is true of me, we just tend not to eat as much as we probably need. It's whatever you think is the right amount, you should probably eat some more. And so it's like drinking water, right? (laughs) Yeah. And so like, uh, you know, assuming you don't replace those protein calories with potato chips, there's a good chance you're going to be eating a wider variety of stuff, especially to like make your diet more interesting. So I think eventually it will lead to like a a feeling physically better. Uh, I do have to ask though, Doug, what do you think you're going to miss the most now that you're a vegetarian? I mean, lots of things. Right, it, a part of it. I is did just say the most. Yes, I know, but you had, did not didn't give me much prep on that, so I can't exactly make a top ten list, <laughs> dickhead. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could say like a big steak, but it's not like I was I was eating steak or filet mignon on a regular basis. Honestly, the thing I'll miss the most is just easy meals, things that are just very simple, like uh, like. Um, Cold cuts and things like that, making sandwiches and and getting pizza. I mean, you can still do that, of course. It's just that the options are a little less varied. Things seem a little less easy a lot of the times. It's just hard to throw things together. Uh, And, you know, the limited options that you find can sometimes be a little frustrating at certain restaurants and things like that. But really, it isn't that big of a deal. The thing about not feeling that much better is that as the test, as the February test... I was eating a lot of processed foods, right? Because I was dry, I was sure. testing yeah. the waters, yeah. just seeing what was available out there. Oh, here's some, you know, we tried the Impossible Burger, and you try, you know, uh, and all of the different kind of variations of things that are going out there. And some of them are just terrible for you. People ask, yeah. you know, they say yeah. all the time, it's like, it's like, oh, you're say uh, uh, all the time, like I've lived with this, but you know, my wife was a vegan for years and years and years, and it's just like, it's like, well. It's like you must be, you know, feeling really healthy. It's just like, no, that's not how it necessarily works. You can no, replace these yeah. things. Right now I'm eating like rice five times a week, that sort of thing, right? I mean, it can still be bad for you to eat all those carbs and things. So you still have to balance it. But you, in the long run, you're right. A lot more vegetables, trying to eat less processed foods. But the easiest stuff to eat as a vegetarian is still, you know, super processed. I mean, look, Doug, I'm trying to feel any sort of compassion for your problems, but I was a vegetarian in the 90s. So as far as I'm concerned, you have nothing to cry about. Uh, (laughs) In fact, I have trouble avoiding uh, vegan and vegetarian options now that I'm a blood mouth and I don't want any of that shit near me. The Uh, the fact that it's easier and more affordable is one of the defining reasons I was able to do it. I mean, that's it. It's hard to afford this lifestyle, which is why I'm not, I don't lay a big judgment thing. I mean, the fact that you were a vegetarian and stopped, I mean, I don't know why you 
stopped caring about animals. I guess it just happened. Maybe you just stopped caring. Yeah, no, I did 100%. Uh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, fuck animals. It was never about the animals. It was about feeling superior to other people. And yeah. it, that, that, that high wore off, man. And so, you know, I just, and, I had to, I had to look for other highs, you know, I had yeah, to look well, for I other mean, highs. I'm, I want my superiority and inferiority complexes to fight it out and see who wins. Yeah, yeah. So this is just giving a little bit of ammo to my superiority complex. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, we're here not to talk about your eating habits, Doug, but to talk about Thank goodness to talk about uh, one Carol Kane and uh, people might remember on a recent episode we discussed the film I Mordecai and uh, we we were a little confused based on the information that was available at the time as to what the movie was about and and what was going on with it and uh, you found this uh, feature here that not only talks more about the movie but points out that through this movie, which is based on a true story, we're getting a little bit of a taxi reunion how about that doug yeah it's odd that we didn't mention it the fact that judd hurst we knew we mentioned that judd hurst starred in this and that carol kane was going to be in it but we did i think we failed to mention at all about the fact that of course they you know they're they're a lot of their a lot of the reason that they're well known even to this day is because they appeared together on taxi uh and that's kind of the crux of this article from newsday about how this couple inspired the big screen film and historic taxi reunion but it did give us a little bit more information as well about the idea i mean all we talked about when we talked about what we thought this movie was was about this older gentleman who gets an iphone and suddenly it was a little confusing about what it meant but apparently what it is is that these two real life people mordecai and fila samuel they're holocaust refugees they're they're uh, a little older and I, I guess part of the crux of the plot of it is that one of them has alzheimer's and the relationship between the couple sounds like it could be very dramatic and and i mean hopefully very interesting to watch it uh, we mentioned the fact that it had only recently been added to the imdb page of carol kane but apparently it's going to be the opening night film of the 25th annual Miami Jewish Film Festival. So I guess we're going to be able to see it fairly soon. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Doug, in our defense, it was hard to remember the connection between uh, Carol Kane and Judd Hirsch because it seemed, with the little information we had, that this might be some sort of, like, wacky Holocaust comedy. Yeah. And that felt inappropriate. And so I think we were a little distracted by that um, and not really focusing on this connection. Um uh, but yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, we're going to watch it because this is a Carol Kane podcast, but, uh, because it's later in her career, we won't get to it till we're almost in the grave. So that's good. To know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that we have learned, right. Is that the, uh, the cast of taxi keeps up with each other. Uh, and, 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 and one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Doug, is would you be excited for more uh, taxi reunions. Is that something that would draw you to see something knowing that uh, Carol Kane or other members of uh, the cast of Taxi would be reunited in, in, a, in a piece of work? Tony Danza and Mary Lou Henner. Yeah, right. Together at last. Look, you know what? I didn't grow up with Taxi, right? Just simply because I was too young when it, when it was really airing yeah. initially. I did catch up on the... Um, the reruns when I was a little bit older, but it always felt like a very old-fashioned show to me until I got older myself and realized how brilliant it was. So it isn't something that I have a lot of emotional connection with. Sure. But just, just the fact that people were part of this landmark show that would eventually birth something like Cheers, that that the cast like each other and have remained in touch. Yeah. There's something really kind of nice about that. And I have a lot of you know affection for people who were involved in that show, including Judd Hirsch and Mary Lou Henner and Christopher Lloyd, certainly. Um, and just knowing that there's a friendship there that lasts, I think it says a lot about the chemistry of the people that were on screen at that time. Doug, when our landmark podcast is finally canceled, do you think we'll still talk on the phone or whatever object people use in that future? What I tell people all the time about my podcasting, Liam, is even if nobody listened to this podcast, and <laughs> which is not that far dissimilar from what actually is the case, but even if no one listened, I would still want to do it because it's a really nice excuse to get together with my close friend that I love very much. So I, I would still miss it very much if this was not happening. And I would try to find some other excuse to be able to spend time with people I care about. Uh, also recently, Carol Kane appeared on the uh, New Yorker uh, podcast talking about, uh, you know, being a legendary comic performer, but that she began in drama. Uh, Doug, did you get a chance to listen to this podcast? Because I'll be honest with the audience, I did not listen. It's really just a 15-minute interview, and it's very specifically about her performance in Hester Street. Sure, it, sure. But but one of the interesting things about this recording is that the interviewer – 
I mean, I think knowingly makes the same sort of error that I think we made when we first started this show, which is thinking that Carol Kane was always like a a comedic actress of A and B that 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 she'd done that very intentionally. But I mean, Carol Kane in this interview makes it very clear, you know, that and it's something that we know now because we're going through her work chronologically that she her she was a dramatic actor. It was only the circumstance of roles that, by the way, have yet to come. Even though we did cover them up, agree. You know, and and uh, the world's greatest lover. You know, she was not known at this point as a comedic actress, which is something that's very clear from the movie that we're going to be talking about today. This was she was just a. Uh, you know, kind of a, a character actress at this point, not someone that had a defined personality that you would see consistently through her work. That's something that we will see a little bit later. And that's something that probably has defined her at this point in her life. And I'm sure that she's very happy about that because it's meant a very long and very respectable career. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I like most about us doing this podcast is that we're getting such an appreciation for the variety of her talents. And that's something that she talks about a bit on this, uh, this, this interview. Uh, and it's nice it's so funny. We talked about Hester Street at that time that we talked about it, which wasn't that long ago. It was still a movie that had yet to be sort of rediscovered. It was sort of controversial to a certain extent. And now it just feels like with the re-release of it, it there's just every time that we do an episode, there's another article about it. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people talking about it. And uh, I appreciate that because I, I do think it's a pretty great movie. Um, it's, you, it's a little sad that Joe Micklin Silver had to kind of die before a yeah, lot of this agreed. was to come to yeah. pass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that we have not yet gotten to uh, the the bulk of Carol Kane's comedic work. Uh, and we have a great example of that today. We're going to be talking about 1979's <laughs> When a Stranger Calls, uh, a movie that feels like, um, at least at this point in her career, a bit of an anomaly because we haven't seen her do horror. And, and, I, and I don't think, in retrospect, people think of her as a scream queen, right? As, no. as someone who mm-hmm. represents uh, horror. But I would say, based upon this film, that if she had wanted to, that could have become uh, one of the, the 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 paths that she traveled more often. Because I feel like this is an interesting film with an interesting performance for her. But we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about 1979's When a Stranger Calls. We'll be right back. You were babysitting for a family. Hello? Have you checked the children? What? Hello, could you get me the police? If he calls again, we can try to trace it. Leave me alone! Jill, we've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Just get out of that house. A stranger calls. Rated R. A psychopathic killer terrorizes a babysitter and then returns seven years later to menace her again. It's 1979's When a Stranger Calls with a very spoilery write-up, by the way. Just saying. It's what basically... happens between those two things? <laughs> Nothing that matters. <laughs> Directed by Fred Walton. I'm, I'm, jo- I'm already starting off with the wrong foot here. That's not true. Uh, directed by Fred Walton, um, an American director who uh, notably directed not just the sequel, When a Stranger Calls Back, but a movie we talked about very recently, Doug, April Fool's Day, a film that I think still needs to get a reappraisal, a dramatic reappraisal, because I think that's a great movie. Uh, he did a few other uh, films like The Rosary Murders and I Saw What You Did. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting that he came back for the sequel to this, which was some years later in 1993. Is that right? I mean, at some point in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, he, he started making television films and that includes sure, When sure. a Stranger Calls Back. So he basically was a TV film director uh, right up until the late 90s where he made a sequel to The Stepford Wives called The Stepford Husbands. Yeah. Uh, it was written by a gentleman named Steve Feck, who's uh, done a lot of TV work. Um, he's had episodes of Profiler, Beastmaster, uh, Kojak <laughs> series. But the thing that Doug wants all of you to know, he made a big point of it, was that he co-wrote 1988's Mac and Me. <laughs> oh god get out of when, here when you watch when a stranger calls just think about the fact that the dialogue yeah. that you're hearing yeah was was also from the person who wrote <laughs> mac and me fuck <laughs> you know things go wrong in people's lives Doug. um starring charles durning carol kane uh colleen dewhurst tony beckley rachel roberts um superfly ron o'neill Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Ah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I totally forgot. I was like, why do I know that? 
this is embarrassing to admit, but I'm going to admit it right now. You just answered the question for me that whole time. I was going, why does this cop guy look so fucking familiar? It's super fly. I could have just looked at IMDb, but I didn't. So uh, since starting Praising Kane, we've seen the following films featuring Charles Durning, Dog Day Afternoon, Harry and Walter go uh, to New York, the Muppet movie, and now this. It's an interesting list of collaborations between him and Carol Cave, though one could argue, you know, how much were they together in some of these things? But still. I mean, it is an odd thing, though. It is strange yeah. that yeah. just just not the fact that we're done, what, 11 episodes of this show so far, and we've seen him appear four times, and we're going to see him once more, at least. I mean, that's, that's it's just interesting. He was a ubiquitous man, that Charles Durning. He could, could get away from him. Uh, I need to know, Doug, what you think of this movie, because I think this is a uh, a film... When I think of movies of this type from 1979, there's a number of them that still loom large in our imagination in 2022. Like, uh, you know, how old am I? 42 going on 43 years later? People still care. I know. It's ridiculous. People still care about so many horror movies from this time, you know? if, if Sure, absolutely. Here. And this is a movie I do not see anyone cosplay anything from it. I don't see it on T-shirts a lot. Uh, it's not something that I hear a lot about. And yet, occasionally, I do hear people who are very passionate about certain aspects of it. Absolutely. So all, all of that makes me curious to know, Doug, what did you think of this movie? Had you seen it before first? And then second, what did you think of 1979's When a Stranger Calls? I think we said at the end of our most recent episode of Praising Cain that neither of us had seen it before. It's, it's something that we had uh, made us both very curious and interested to check yeah, out. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. It is totally bizarre that this film's reputation, which I think is actually maybe a little more positive than you give it credit for. When people Poss- talk possible, about When a Stranger yeah. Calls, if they know what it is, the, the general consensus is that, oh, that's a really good movie. But they're not I, I'm, talking. I'm maybe not saying it has a negative reputation. I'm not sure that it has a reputation. I think it does. Just it's kind of muted. Certainly in our circles, it does. But that reputation is not about the movie. It's about the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yes, and that's almost it entirely. And you will see this if you read reviews of it, modern reviews, not contemporary reviews. You will find everyone saying the same thing, which is the first 20 minutes are brilliant, and then the movie becomes an entirely different movie for like 70 minutes straight. And then it goes back into a follow-up to that opening sequence. And, you know, and then it gets, you know, the tone goes back to what it's like at the beginning, whether it works for you or not, that, that might be a bit of a different story. But I think almost everybody is in agreement that the first 20 minutes of this movie are brilliant. And for those who don't know, and I imagine you do, but if you don't, it's basically just an adaptation of a very famous, like, urban legend, spooky story, campfire story of the person, who, you know, the, the babysitter is at home uh, or at the home of the person that she's babysitting for and gets a call on the phone saying, have you checked on the children? Have you checked the children? Gets called, you know, at first she ignores it. The person just keeps calling back. And I have heard that story from my youth. The version of it that I remember when I was a kid, it ends with the discovery that it's actually one of the kids calling that like that's what like it's like a little, a little bit of a funny twist at the end. In this case, the funny twist is that the kids have been murdered by someone who is inside the house. You know, the calls are coming from inside the house. That's probably the thing that people yeah. most connect with when a stranger calls. And I think it's brilliant. I think the opening of it is as good as any horror movie. I my understanding, and I might be wrong on this because some of the trivia in the IMDb trivia for this is not correct. But my understanding is that it was actually meant to be filmed as its own short film. And it was while they were putting it together that they realized that it could be extended into something that would have a bit more broad appeal. And it does feel like that, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like a movie that's been kind of pieced together as opposed to something that was designed to be uh, to fit together like this? And especially because how that piece ends with that kind of weird freeze frame on Charles Durning's face, it just feels like, oh, that's the end of this. Now that's the start of something new. The bulk of this movie it involves a cop seven years after the events of this played by Charles Durning, who's on the search for the killer who had already been caught at the beginning of the movie, who has been in a psychiatric hospital for the past seven years. He's escaped from that hospital. This uh, former police officer, now he's a private detective, and he has been hired by uh, one of the parents of the children who were killed at the beginning of the movie to track down this killer. And then a lot of it becomes sort of like a, instead of the beginning, which is very much a terrifying straight-up horror movie, it becomes more of a psychological thriller, like a cat and mouse thing where he's trying to track this down and we get to spend some time with the killer. And that is both the 
the reason that people feel mixed on this movie, and to me is also one of the most interesting parts of the movie. Yeah. It's just it's it's not straight up great like the opening is, but there is a lot to recommend it. It's just very strange. It just feels tonally at odds with the rest. And then that section of the movie ends, and then we go back to Cal Kane, now seven years older, with her family, and then she gets the call again, and we you know, we get sort of the the final confrontation between Charles Durning and the uh and the killer. Liam my thoughts are a little bit mixed, just like the people who have been reviewing it on Letterboxd. But I have to say, I like the middle section of this more than a lot of people do, simply because it's so different. It does not feel like a slasher film in this time period. Very much the first 20 minutes feels like a movie that owes a lot to Halloween, right? I mean, it feels very much in that mold. The middle part of this feels like something entirely different. And I thought that it was kind of refreshing, though notoriously, I'm not a big slasher guy. Liam, what did you think of When a Stranger Calls? I like how you just subtly switched into host mode to throw it back to me. It's what I do. I'm going to say, Doug, I think I agree with your assessment of the film. It does feel a little disjointed in separate parts. I kind of want to push you a little bit to see if you think that they still work. But I want to ask you that because I'm going to reveal now in a big shocker to the audience that I think it all works very well together in a sense that while I do believe that maybe you can see the seams of these three sections, I actually think there's a lot more resonance than maybe anyone's willing to give it credit for. And in fact, what we're seeing here is because, you know, not that this man uh, uh, played by uh, Tony uh, Beckley is reformed, right? He's escaped. He hasn't been set free. But there's some sense in which he's trying to figure out what to do, how to be a person, right? How to how to sort of how to sort of reintegrate himself into the world around him. I don't There's think- a recognition obviously from that character that he has a mental illness and he yes. has and he, you know there's enough scenes of him struggling with it yes. that 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 you would not see in a movie just about a crazed killer. Though there is there is an element in this movie that we see in a lot of movies at this time period where it's where you see it's like a killer gets off, basically, right? Because he gets to go to a hospital instead. One of the things I like about this movie is the idea. It's like, hey, this guy has mental illness. Nobody is questioning that whatsoever. It's just that Charles Durning, his his vendetta is all about, if I'm going to catch this guy, he's not going to get another trial. He's not going back to a hospital. I'm going to kill him. And I think we, as the audience, are supposed to feel morally mixed about that. Though I do think it, at the end it leans on, oh, it's okay that he kills this guy, which I don't feel that... I mean, feel so cool about that. I I think I actually think that that's that is the vibe of the movie. But I think that that's okay because the movie to me suggests that the window with which this guy could have gone through to be less scary has closed. That right. because because as mm-hmm. he's trying to find his humanity, Charles Dorning is trying to impale him with a needle. That's the thing, guys. He doesn't want to just shoot this dude. So he's got weird throwing needles that he's going to throw at this guy in his face. It's really fucking weird. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. I, I love when he explains that that's how he's going to kill him to Ron O'Neill as his kind of cop friend. And he's like, well, I guess that'll do it. It's just like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're going to kill a guy, you wouldn't just shoot him. No, you throw <laughs> needles. Throw needles at his face and eyes. That's what you would do. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I. But anyways, I, I think the movie... I think the movie is intentionally ambivalent on Charles Durning, not just because in every role Charles Durning is always giving you a vibe of, hey, I might be a racist weirdo. Who knows? Like, that's just always the thing. We are just coming off of that role in the Muppet movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, like, yes, that is partly just Charles Durning's vibe, but I think the movie is intentionally ambivalent on him. You certainly don't want this guy to kill kids, but there's a sense in which maybe – Charles Durning's unwillingness to work with the police and insistence that he just has to find this man and murder him is like a bad call. You know, that that's, you know, I think the film is, is in my mind, actually pretty clear about that. And that really this final scenario that you're talking about, like, let's say it is in three parts. This third part is is almost entirely Charles Durning's fault, you know, in the sense that like, 
maybe this guy was never going to hold it together long enough to not murder a kid. Uh, but maybe they could have recaptured him before anyone was put in danger if Durning wasn't didn't have such a hard on to murder him. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if he had called the cops, I mean, we're not huge fans of the police here at Cinema Smorgasbord. But I mean, if he instead of tried to, instead of going it alone, actually went through you know reasonable channels, this guy wouldn't have gotten away. It's completely his fault that he escapes the the, the middle section of this movie. Well, I think in certain situations you have to choose between not good options and what is the least not good options. And if we're choosing between cops or Charles Durning murder, uh, actually the cops are the probably the less bad option in that scenario. <laughs> Though we could be wrong about that. We've been proven wrong by the police before. <laughs> um, you know, it just seems to me like like because of that. I want to ask you again, even though they're clearly separate and maybe it does feel like there's some tonal issues, do, don't you feel like that middle section really works as like the connective tissue of what are two almost just like urban legends? Like these are just stories you tell someone around a campfire. That middle section is what makes this a fucking movie, right? Yeah, I mean, it does make it a movie. It's just that it's it does feel like a tonally different movie. It doesn't feel like uh, uh, the 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 anxiety that you feel in the first 20 minutes is not something that I felt at all in the middle part. And uh, I felt it a little bit again at the end, but even that kind of felt like, I think what the hardest thing about this is that the movie peaks so early, right? That it's such a clear right. Yes. So of course anything is going to pale in comparison. And the fact that not only does it pale in comparison, but it's like now we have completely different actors doing completely different things. That whole Carol Kane segment at the beginning, we don't see the killer. We only hear his voice. So, and we don't see Charles Durning until the very last second of it. So, really, there's no connection that we notice. It feels like it's an entirely different movie for a long time. The fact that Cal Kane comes back at the end, it's like, oh, now it all sort of makes sense that it does have a connective thorough line. But until it does go back to it, that thorough line doesn't really exist outside of the fact that he was involved in this case and is obsessed by it. See, for me, I almost want to suggest that, like, the obvious things, the, uh, the 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 things that are right there on the table that you don't even have to think about are the beginning and the end. Right. And what this movie has done is like insert a drama into the middle, just sort of squeeze it in like the juice in an eclair or whatever, <laughs> cream in an eclair, I guess. I was going to say, I, I don't think they call that juice. <laughs> but but maybe that is a good thing. Because oh, this eclair is a little too juicy. I got to say. <laughs> no, actually, I take it back. I do mean juice because, <laughs> because cream is what you would expect. That's so, true. So what? So what the movie should be is he what gets, is this orange juice? I don't expect that in a fucking eclair, right? <laughs> you're you're, make, you're making fun, but the point of I, it works in that what we expect is he gets out of the mental hospital, a la Michael, and he goes on another murder spree. And instead, what we get is something totally different. And I, in my mind, I suspect that uh, the writer and directors of this movie or someone involved in this movie, whether it was a producer, somebody thought that middle section was going to shine more than that very well-done beginning because it's the thing that's new. As good as that beginning is, that's the familiar part. As maybe not as good, but as consistent as that ending is, that's the familiar part. That middle is an unexpected taste. It's something we didn't see coming. And I think that is the part that people don't appreciate, but I am appreciating it, even though I'm not sure if it totally works, because it is the new idea. It is the thing that is not going to hit people as the same old notes they were expecting. Yeah. I mean, it is the thing that's interesting about this movie, but I can see why it threw audiences and continues to throw audiences for a loop. It isn't what they came to see. It's not what's on the poster. It's not what was in the trailer. You know, you 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 would have thought if they knew what people would have responded to in this movie, then what they would have done is try to intersect the two things all the way throughout, which is that Carol Kane, they would keep kind of going back to her as she's now seven years older. She's getting calls. She's getting worried. She's in contact with Charles Durning. Like they would try to mix it all together as opposed to having it in these kind of chunks. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But – I don't know. I, I mean, the the problem here is that I just said, and you agreed with me, that that's the interesting part. Technically, that's not true. On paper, the middle is the interesting part because it's new. 
as an actual film, the beginning is the interesting part. Of course, it's very well done, and and maybe maybe there's even a sense in which, you know, they don't realize they didn't realize how much more powerful it was than the rest of the movie. But really, the movie does climax there, and 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 I don't think that's intentional. Um, I don't know. I, I, anyways, you know, I just want to mention. I have a, a letterbox review here from Mike D'Angelo. Uh, not a big fan of When a Stranger Calls, and his review is basically reading like the tail end of one of these spooky stories, these urban legends. And he reads, "And there, hanging from the car's door handle, was a razor sharp hook." No, no, kids, sit back down. There's lots more. Many years later, a guy with a missing hand walks into a bar and tries to hit on a middle-aged lady. He doesn't score, though, because she's not interested, and some other dude beats him up. Hang on. Let me put the flashlight down. Don't really need that anymore. And there's also this cop. Well, he used to be a cop. Now he's a private dick. I mean, oh, boy, detective. Sorry. Anyway, he's determined to capture the hook. Get that seedy, pathetic shell of a man behind bars. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. But you get the idea. It's so strange to have an opening segment that seems to have a beginning, middle, and end, and then it's just a continuation but then you're right that's also interesting it's like well now you know we we get annoyed these days about the idea of like the um, remakes of horror movies where they have to fill in a bunch of backstory for it that's not what this is this is like this guy this incredibly unforgivable terrible thing what kind of fucking person could do it and then we find out a little bit about this person and the answer is a very disturbed and kind of pathetic person I mean, to be fair, it doesn't give us a shit ton of backstory. Not a we, lot, that's true. We just get to see him be weird. Yeah. But there is this idea that when he first got out of the hospital, and I, I don't think that this is true, but in the context of the film, because of the crazy fucked up shit they were doing to him at the hospital, that he comes out and he's like, he's not that guy anymore. Like there's right. a There's an idea that like while he has escaped, he's not on the hunt for children. Right. He he is someone different. And maybe if circumstances were different, um, there's a way to get him back to that hospital and not to put anyone in danger, including him. But we've got murder hard on Charles Durning, who's just is under. And to be fair, I'm, I'm coming hard for Charles Durning. Uh, the initial crime is pretty fucked. The idea that like how many years later was it? Seven years later. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that seven years later, Charles Durning is still fucked from this experience and wants some feeling of revenge, that's very believable, by the way. Sure. This is, I mean, I'll straight up say, Doug, my version of this story, we've all, like you said, we've all heard the version. It does end with dead children. But when the movie ended with dead children, I was fucking surprised. I sure. thought the kids will be alive. Fucking Carol Kane is going to get it, and then the poster is going to be a lie because she's dead and she's not in the rest of the movie. When they were like, I, no. the fact that I knew that there's a sequel to this starring Carol Kane probably tempered that for me somewhat. I've totally <laughs> forgot about the sequel. So in in the moment, I'm like, oh, she's going to get it, but the kids are probably okay. The idea that they're like, no, Carol Kane lives, but those kids are fucking dog meat is like, oh, oh, we're going hard on this thing, huh? But I, I almost the the intensity of that for me, Doug, almost makes that middle section that much more gutsy, even if, uh, you know, there is a part of me that does think it's a swing and a miss, but it's a pretty big swing that I, I'm, I, I'm kind of interested in. I, I don't want to harp on this too much longer, though. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this movie for me, maybe because of the urban legendness of it. It feels more connected to the anxieties that people were feeling about serial killers uh, especially in this like sort of post Manson world more than other slashers. Cause a lot of other slashers feel ridiculous, right? They don't feel like connected to anything we've heard before, but this movie at this time playing off of this sort of urban legend, it has a sense around it of like, not a, a true story, obviously, but maybe something you've heard before, maybe something you feel before. Do you think that this movie has that DNA of that, anxiety people were feeling at the time that you know at any moment some drug adult hippie was going to come and murder everyone in their neighborhood i think there's something to that if only because this movie focuses more on the psychology of the person right than yeah. we'd be used to seeing at that time right and that feels like there's a thorough line to like hannibal lecter and manhunter and things like that which again not a real killer but the people's interest in what could make a person do something like that i think that was very high in the late 70s early 80s and would continue to be throughout the 1980s which felt like you know kind of the heyday 
of the the spree killer to a certain extent. Certainly more so than the slasher movies that inspired this and the ones that were coming out around it. I mean, this is a movie that often is put in that category of a slasher movie. But aside from the fact that the opening sequence is feels very much in the same mold as Halloween, the rest of it doesn't really feel like that at all, right? I mean, it's a really different kind of movie entirely. Just I know we were gone past it a little bit, but I just want to say one way to improve this movie for me entirely is actually to swap Ron O'Neill's character with Charles Durning's character in this. I think that Charles Durning is miscast in the movie because he just yeah, – it's yeah. hard to be sympathetic to him and he feels more like the person who should be, you know, the old, you know – angry cop that that Ron O'Neill is turning to for a little bit of help. I just feel like Ron O'Neill has a little bit of a coolness factor that would have played in that character. There's just nothing cool about Charles Durning. And maybe he shouldn't be cool in this, but it's just like it, it means that he's kind of a drag when we're spending so much time with him. Um, but just going back to what you were talking about, I think the fact that it focuses so much on the psychology of it, um, and it's also in an era where I think a lot of people have those that skepticism about mental hospitals, maybe it's because of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or whatever, that that it all kind of plays into it. Though I, I, I wasn't even alive at the time that this movie came out, so I don't know in terms of the general feeling. But, I mean, this could only have been a few years after Summer of Sam, right? I think that's correct, yes. Um, I will find out. That where... actually would be... Uh yeah uh wait the yeah the so the David Berkowitz thing was 1977 so that feels like it could definitely be yeah. an influence yeah on it. yeah yeah and I, I, but I also think like I want to get back to what you're saying before but uh I I, I want to just acknowledge what you just said and and say you know with other slasher films watching them be awkward in a bar and then get you know beat up by some random weirdo it would definitely hurt the mystique. Right. It would very much. But like for me and maybe you don't feel this way for me, I also find mental illness uh, as it's portrayed in these films, which is, by the way, very unfair and very offensive. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, let's acknowledge that. But the way that they do it, I also find that uncomfortable. Like, I don't find mm. that not. So when we see how mistreated he is and then he shows up at her apartment later. That's not a scene that isn't intimidating to me. Like, I, I very much was like, this scene could easily end with him wearing her innards on his head. Sure. Like, it could end in a much more upsetting way than it than it does. And so, like, I don't want to say the, 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 the cinematic tension of the opener is very well done and, and, and sort of on a razor wire. But I don't think that means that there's other parts of this movie that couldn't be menacing or that don't have some menace in it. Um, because there is something about spending time with this guy that is also kind of upsetting, upsetting, maybe not quite as upsetting as, uh, Henry portrait of a serial killer, but you know, not that far. I, mean, I, I do think that you hit on something though. Like why would this movie include that scene of him awkwardly hitting on her? Like to the point where he's a creep and we're like, yeah, you got to stop buddy. Or, I mean, you really should stop. But that part afterwards where the guy comes over and just beats and beats and beats on him. I don't think we as the audience are supposed to be like, yeah, beat on that guy, beat on that. At that point, it's not that we're necessarily supposed to have sympathy for him. It's that we're like, my God, what a horrible life this person has. And there is an element of kind of of echo of sympathy for the, the shit that he's obviously gone through. So, I mean, I think that there is there is a kind of a, a real a real kind of center, a little nugget of real empathy and interest there that I wish the movie leaned into a little bit more. Uh, you mentioned casting earlier, uh, sure. and, and I wanted to reference back to it and I just agree with you that I think the those roles switch would be great, especially because I don't think Charles Durning is capable of giving us the emotional complexity that we need. Like if we had a sense of this officer's trauma uh, post this horrible murder that he saw, then that might actually add something. But like Charles Durning is just grumpy in the movie. Yeah. Like there's he just doesn't give us anything more. I also feel a little bad for him because he's got to do like a bunch of chasing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. it just doesn't work that well. I also kind of feel like the reason that Colleen Dewar's character in the film, by the way, that's an actress that I really have a lot of time for, very beloved here in Canada for her appearance in Anne of Green Cables in the 1980s. But she's a little bit older in this movie, and I think that we're supposed to think 
that there's some sort of tension between her and Charles Durning's character. Um, and maybe they aged her up specifically for that. And like, it just, that doesn't work, especially at the end no, of that relationship, no. which is just that she almost gets attacked. He chases her off. And then we get no follow up with her whatsoever. She's just had this horrible trauma. We don't know what happens with her. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. But I, but I agree with you that if it wasn't for, the tension that they're supposed to have, which isn't there. I like her casting. Like, she's very good in this. She's terrific, yeah. And that leads me to my other casting question is, what did you think of Tony Beckley in this role? Because I think his, what he's being asked to do in this movie is hard, right? Because he has moments that, I think we agree, they're not meant to be sympathetic, but they are human. Yeah, he has human, other, that's right. And then he has other moments that are very specifically not fucking human. And so, like... I think he does a very interesting job. What did you think of his performance as this character? I think he's amazing. I mean, the other thing to note is that he was dying of cancer when he was making this movie. Fuck. And knew he was. And there's a part where he's basically naked and looking in a mirror, you know, trying to struggle with his own mental illness. And I think it's a really powerful part. Maybe maybe the highlight of his performance in this. I mean, it's a... He is a character that stands out because he has that British accent and, and he, you know, he's, he's, he has that kind of haunted look about him. But I think it's a really strong performance. And again, comparing it to the slasher movies of the time, what other slasher movie has a character like this? None of them, right? They just, it just wouldn't go in that direction. It's not that the movie thinks it's necessarily better than the genre that it's part of, though there might be something to that. But this, this doesn't feel like it fits comfortably next to a Friday the 13th or Halloween. It just feels like a different kind of movie. Yeah, and I guess the the issue is that because of the ways that it is marketed, that yeah. could come across to people as a bait and switch, where they, you know, they came for a fucking slasher movie. That's why they came to the to the theater today, and they're not even getting a Black Sunday. You know what I mean? Like it's sure. it's not even like just the best example of a of a slasher movie. It's something else entirely with an intro. And again, to be fair, as tight and as as. I think very sort of scary that introduction is. I don't really think that's a slasher movie introduction either. It's just a good horror movie setup, really. I mean, yeah, I suppose you're right in that if it was a slasher movie, we would have gotten to see more of those kids. uh, And maybe there'd be a little bit more of a direct threat up to that point. But that said, the movies, the slasher movies of that time period and the ones that would kind of proliferate throughout the rest of the 80s, the idea of like the origin starting with like a spooky story, that that's consistent with this, right? I mean, even the idea of 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 um, of Jason Voorhees is sort of like a campfire ish type character. So I feel like it, that the DNA is certainly more connected with the horror movies of the time than the rest of the movie is. But I just don't think the visual language fits for me. It does doesn't feel like that. But I don't know. Maybe that's just my. I, I feel like this is better than most. <laughs> I, oh, it is. I, it is. I, I it is. That, but it, but, but the visual language to me feels very much inspired by Halloween. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's right. I for me the the the. I guess that's why I brought up Black Sunday though, because of the calls. The calls feel very much in line more with the the menace of Black Sunday and the guy on the line being like, blah, 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 blah. but he. I, I, it's not exactly the same thing. But anyways. Uh, this is not a podcast about slasher movies, Doug. Uh, especially not because it's a podcast about Carol Kane. And as far as I could tell, she was in this and maybe one other slasher movie, which is the sequel to this. You know, like technically speaking, we like, might be surprised. But uh, from her most famous roles, I can't think of another that really resembles this. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what did you think of Carol Kane in this role? A role that is very important and then goes away and then is very important again. Not only does it go away, it goes away and she comes back seven years older. So she has to play basically yes. maybe late high school, early college age while she was in her late 20s and then play a mother, you know, like a, a loving mother of two later on. And she's terrific as both of them and completely believable as both of them. I mean, the fact that she's kind of slight looking and, and has that look, of, you know, the Carol Kane look of that era, she could easily play younger. So that's not really a problem at the end. But she's totally believable as the parent later on as well. I don't think you can ask for more in this role, which is a one-woman show for the first 20 minutes, right? I mean, there's there's some conversations on the phone. We get the parents for a moment, but like 98% of it is just her sitting, doing things, studying, answering the phone, getting more and more kind of worked up. There's really high-quality filmmaking on display, which we, we can't really 
uh, separate from this, right? The fact that the phone calls get louder and louder and the tension of it builds very kind of slowly and then speeds up. But she is unbelievable. I mean, she really does envelop this. And like you were saying at the beginning, there's no reason at all, if this is the direction she wanted to go in, that she couldn't be like a Jamie Lee Curtis-style scream queen outside of the fact that maybe she doesn't have... Maybe she isn't like the traditional Hollywood definition of beautiful. But I think that she's incredible and perfect here in it. And it's hard to imagine anyone else looking as perfectly frightened as she is in those final moments of that opening segment. She's great in the other part of it as well, particularly when she gets that phone call and uh, at the restaurant and hears the voice once again and basically collapses in hysterics. That scream, if that is her scream that comes from the other room that her husband hears, I mean, that that's just more proof of her bona fides as a potential scream queen. And this is coming from someone who hates that 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 label. But I, as, as someone who could have acquitted herself very well in horror films, I think she would have been absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm not saying she should have been in more horror films, but it is interesting that here we have our – I mean, I guess you could make an ar- argument that Mafu Cage was a kind of horror film, but um, I would say this is the first thing we've seen her in that's a traditional horror film, and she is yeah, – it's not that traditional. But anyways, um, she's great. She's unbelievable. It, it when, when it comes to just how impressed I am with her, I really think like I've created a trinity in my mind of like this – Hester Street and Mafu Cage. I think so far those three films, it's like, oh yeah, she's unbelievable, you know. And that's not that she's bad at the other things that we've talked about. Uh, that's not what I mean, but I just mean she impresses the shit out of me in those three movies, you know. Yeah, I mean, and, a, a, real, a real example of the kind of range. Yes, that, that in some ways, you know, I mean, it not only is a great range, but it's exactly the kind of range that people don't think of her as having. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable that that again, like you said, she is she is utterly convincing as this babysitter who is I don't know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, whatever, and then later as the mom, there's no like oh this doesn't work you know like in in either role, she's very convincing, um, but really in that early like that early section that is so impressive. A lot of why it's impressive is not just the skill of the editing and directing and whatever else. It's her performance. Like that her performance is just something else. And I I don't know. I, I, I mean, obviously, we already liked her a lot or else we wouldn't have started this podcast. But this was very much a reminder of like, oh, yeah, she's great. You know, like and it is funny that we have gone from Mafu Cage to Muppet Movie to this. It's like. She's really give. We're really getting the whiplash of the Carol King career at this point, uh, and and I'm kind of hoping there's. I know we'll get into more of a groove later, but I'm hoping for a few more surprises like this, where you know I knew I would kind of like it, but I really liked her in it uh, more than I thought I would. I wonder if when we eventually see the sequel to this, which is going to be a long time from now, right? You know, in that movie, both Carol Kane and Charles Durning return. And they, you know, they interact within it. I wonder if that will, having seen that, will will kind of smooth over some of the rough edges of the connective tissue of this particular movie. I'm, I'm curious about that when I eventually see it. I might check it out sooner rather than later just because it's such in my head right now. But no, I, I think you can't ask for a better performance. I do feel like there are some people who would watch this and think that it's a bit of a bait and switch because literally of the, you know, 100 minutes of this movie, she's only in like 40 of those minutes. But she, she, I mean, she is the the person who makes the the strongest impression by leaps and bounds. Agreed. And and again, we just spent a chunk of time talking about our our, our man um, Tony Beckley here and praising his performance. And yet, she's much more in my mind impressive in this film than even he is, and he has a very a very hefty role to play. Yeah. Um, Doug. Uh, that was uh, When a Stranger Calls, a movie that was, you know, a, a bit of a surprise for me. Um, I'm gonna about to be surprised about our next episode <laughs> because we are meant to cover 1979 again's La Sabina, a movie that you mentioned on an earlier episode was almost impossible to find. Uh, are we going to be covering La Sabina? 
so on the Armafu Cage episode, I mentioned uh, that upcoming, because we, we actually went through some of the upcoming movies we'd be covering, that I had not been able to find a copy of La Sabina, uh, that it was completely unavailable in with I had I had a version of it with no English subtitles that was um, that that was not in English, so there'd be no way for us to watch it. I was actually going to posit the idea of us watching it in its original language or the, the version that was available to at least get a sense of it because I do try to be a bit of a completist here. Thankfully, just in the last few hours before we started recording, I was able to track down an English version of La Sabina. So on the next episode, uh, Jose Luis Burroughs, uh, La Sabina, starring uh, John Finch, Angelina Molina, and Carol Kane on the next episode. So I'm very excited about that. Originally, we were going to have to cover, had to cover, I mean, we would be covering the next movie uh, as listed by her internet movie database profile, which is The Games of Countess Dolingen, which I do have a copy of. But uh, but thankfully, that can hold off for one more episode. We will continue our streak. La Sabina from 1979, the next episode of Praising Kane. I'm so excited. Just knowing how hard it is to find just makes me excited that we, you were able to find it and we're going to be able to talk about it. It's so. Tusk. It's Tusk is the movie we're going to Yeah, watch. well, that's a bummer. <laughs> hey, hey, Doug, if people want to hear us talk about Tusk or, you know, other things on other shows, where can they find more of uh, us both on this show and other podcasts? Well, they can find Cinepunks podcast, which includes Cinema Smorgasbord, over at Cinepunks.com. But before I get to that, I just want to mention briefly that uh, chronologically on the Internet Movie Database profile for Carol Kane, there is another project we haven't covered yet, which is a uh, a, a filmed theatrical performance um, uh, called Out of Our Father's House, which appeared on PBS in 1978, a teleplay, which is currently available on YouTube. That's something we might, we might talk about as well, but not as its own episode. We might just talk about it as kind of a separate thing. But I just wanted to mention it simply because it's a little out of chronology from where we are right now. We're focusing mostly on uh, theatrically uh, released films and things like that. Th- those are kind of like uh, odds and ends, which I'm sure we will talk about as well. But Liam, you can find the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord over at Cinepunks.com, which has a array of wonderful podcasts and writing, including some recent writing by yourself up on there and a whole giant archive of wonderful things to check out there. Check it out at Cinepunks.com or on social media under the name Cinepunks. But if you want to see the latest episodes of all of our Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, as well as our vast archive, go over to Cinema Smorgasbord. Smorgasbord.com. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jackie Chan, of course, Cal Kane, as you're listening to right now, George Kennedy, uh, and Dick Miller, more and more and more being added, including the recently launched Bartell Me Something Good about the director, writer, and actor Paul Bartell. Check that out at cinemasmorgasbord.com and subscribe to our podcast through there. Uh, or if you want to leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice, we would certainly appreciate it. Cinema Smorgasbord is also on various social media under the name Cinema Smorg on Twitter, or just look up Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook. Liam, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Liam Rules on Twitter. That's R U L Z. And uh, you're uh, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T I L L E Y. Thanks, yeah. Liam. I appreciate that little setup there. <laughs> uh, thanks everybody for listening hey you know rate review subscribe all that stuff tell, tell a friend, friend. <laughs> yeah please tell a friend about the show you know uh, let, let let your barber or your hairdresser <laughs> or your whatever know um, and we just we really appreciate you uh, for listening and checking it out uh, but until next time have a great night good night I'm in the phone with this one across the hall If you don't answer, I'll just ring it on the wall I know she's there, but I just had a call Don't leave me hanging on the telephone Don't leave me hanging